accessible way possible. Whether you're suffering from chronic illness, raising children in a world of conflicting information, or you simply want to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of yourself, join me along with expert guests as we uncover the most actionable ways to recondition ourselves back to wellness. Welcome everyone to episode 22 of Reconditioned with Lauren Vacneen. The title of the episode is Healing the Immune System and Inflammatory Conditions with biochemist and nutritionist Karen Hurd. And oh my God, it's going to blow your mind. My intention for this episode was to bring information that can help anyone at all to heal from long-term conditions Honestly, anything from autoimmune and inflammatory conditions to ADD, acne, allergies, infertility, endometriosis, thyroid, Crohn's, and also just the best way to live healthily for optimum health and to to prevent illness moving forward. Karen's knowledge of the human body is honestly second to none, but it's her story that makes it all the more fascinating. I'm actually doing her protocol for inflammatory conditions right now to help alleviate the inflammation that might be contributing to triggering the trigeminal neuralgia. So I can speak from experience when I say her online courses are super comprehensive. And honestly, there is one for everything. She basically, she's helped so many thousands and thousands of people, over 50,000 people with success stories. And she couldn't have, she didn't have time to treat them all, you know, to treat everyone moving forward individually. So she decided to create courses, which she spent years creating. And they are honestly so brilliant and just such a great way of understanding your own condition and remedying it. Now, it's a long episode, so I apologize that it's so long. It does get quite sciencey. It does get into biochemistry quite a lot because she's a biochemist and she really likes to explain why things are the way they are and why we eat certain things, why we shouldn't eat other things, what they do to the body. Obviously, if those bits are a bit too uh, sciencey, feel free to forward it a little bit. But I personally, and when I did her course as well, I really focused on those points when I was watching her videos because it helped me to learn a lot. So if you can stick with it, stick with it because you will just learn so much. Um, And I, you know, I was going to try and cut some bits out because it was such a long episode, but actually I just wanted to keep all the information in there because she is a fountain of knowledge and there is so much to learn from her. So I really hope that you will, or you can try and make time to listen to the whole episode and I'd love to know your thoughts on it. Um, Towards the end, we do touch on trigeminal neuralgia, which I've been suffering from, simply because although it's quite a rare condition, there are people who do suffer from it. And when I was looking up podcasts that spoke about it, I only found one. So I hope that if anyone else is suffering from trigeminal neuralgia, this might um, help you a little bit. If you learn anything that you enjoy in this episode, please share on social media. It really helps other people to find the podcast Um, because the more people who listen the more people can see it so please do that and I'm just going to get straight into it now because it's super long so I don't want to take off any more of your time so thank you so much for joining me and I really hope you enjoy this episode and here is Karen with Karen Hurd. 
Practicing for 30 years, Karen, in addition to her nutritional training, holds a Master of Science in Biochemistry and is currently enrolled at the George Washington University in the Master of Public Health program. Her philosophy in approaching health is that food has the power to kill, food has the power to heal. It's your choice. Karen applies her knowledge at the biomolecular level to understand the cause of the health problems we face and what dietary and lifestyle changes are needed to correct that cause and unlock our best health. So Karen, thank you so much for giving your time to this. Um, Your work is something I think everyone needs to hear about, and I don't think I've actually ever come across anyone who can match your knowledge on the human body and nutrition specifically. Uh, What makes it more interesting, though, is your very, very uh, interesting story. And I'd love for you to take us back through that, because it really gives what you do such context. Sure, sure, I'll be happy to do that. Um, Well, uh, let me start with a little background information so you can understand how I arrived at the conclusions I did and what drove me. After I graduated from college, I was a a regular Army officer in the United States Army, and one of my responsibilities was being the nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense officer for our 500-man battalion. And so I underwent a tremendous amount of training to protect, and I trained my troops to tell how to protect themselves in case we were attacked by a biological or chemical or nuclear weapon. So I, I, I had some knowledge in that area, which most people didn't. So that's just a little background. Got out of the United States Army, um, went on, and I wanted to be a mom. So I had one child, two children, three children, and my my youngest was 18 months old at the time. And we had we were living um, in in the United States, and uh, we had just recently moved into a home that the people prior to us had wanted to make it obviously more uh, amenable. So they had put in new carpet, well, new to the house carpet. And it was actually a carpet, we found out later, that had been in a man's garage for several years that is just stored there, and they had laid that carpet into the house. Well, shortly after we moved in, there was this outbreak of carpet beetles. And the larvae and the beetles were hatching out. They were everywhere. And it was a it was, you couldn't stomp on them. You couldn't hit them with a fly swatter. There was too many of them. I mean, you could, but they, we were overrun. Oh, gosh. And because of my prior training in the United States Army, you know, with this, with the chemical warfare, I was concerned about calling an exterminator because I knew that the chemicals that they would use were not great and healthy. But we were so overrun with the bugs that I thought, okay, I'm going to call the exterminator. So we did, and they came out, and they sprayed. As they were carpet beetles, they sprayed every bit of carpet, every bit of the floor, every part of our home, and we stayed away the required amount of time. And then we came back, and when we came back, the smell was very strong. Um, You know, we had the windows open. We did everything properly, and it it was strong. And they said, you know, I called the exterminator and they said, oh, no, no, you're fine. Everything's fine. It's all safe. And okay. So, well, um, we were there at the house. We all began feeling sick. Uh, we didn't, we, we were, it's sort of like flu-like symptom, um, and feeling, you know, 
just under the weather and slight coughs. And three days after the sprain, my 18-month-old, she started to exhibit these signs that I recognized from my training in my troops in the Army that this would be a nerve agent poisoning. And she went into a seizure. She started with little tremors, and those tremors immediately went into a grand mal seizure. And this is where all four of her limbs were jerking, her head rolled, her eyes rolled back in her head. She was foaming at the mouth. Of course, we rushed her to the emergency room. And there they gave her Valium, and the seizure stopped. And they did testing to see what, you know, what caused it. They did chest x-rays. They did a spinal tap. And they said, she has double pneumonia. And they kept her in the hospital um, for three days and on antibiotics and a small dose of phenobarbital. I brought to their attention, could this be the sprain from the carpet? And their answer was, no, absolutely not. There would be no way that could happen. She would have to drink it. It's not going to be that. So I went back home to the same house that had been sprayed for these carpet beetles. It was only one and one half days after that that I was holding Ruth. She had all the symptoms, the pinpoint pupils. She had all the, the slight diarrhea, the slight cough. Again, we were all not feeling well. And she again went into a seizure, same grand mal seizure, the limbs jerking, the whole, the whole thing. We rushed her to the ER. She continued to seize and seize and seize. The Valium did not work. An hour and 20 minutes later, she was still in a grand mal seizure. This is, this is, this, these are not how long these seizures last. Seizures last usually just a very, very short amount of time, not an hour and 20 minutes. The emergency room physician, he said, I have given her the maximum amount of Valium. She is, she is not going to live. And I mean, here we are in the emergency room. She's, we're holding her on the table. She's jerking, you know, like crazy. My husband's on one side of the table. I'm on the other side of the table. The emergency room physician had his back to us. And, and he said, I can't give her more Valium. There's, and I begged him to give her atropine because I knew from my Army training that's what we would give our troops if we had been exposed to a nerve agent. And that's what this, this organophosphate, this was what they sprayed. It was what it was. And so I, he had said, I can't give her atrophine. We don't even have it in the hospital. And there's nothing else I can do. And unless, unless the seizure stops, there's, it's, he was trying to be, you know, he was very upset and he was concerned. My husband and I, we joined hands over my little girl. And my husband prayed, dear God, you gave her to us. If you want to take her home, you can take her home. And after he prayed that prayer, she stopped seizing. The emergency room physician wheeled around because, I mean, when you're seizing, it's not a silent. I mean, you know, everything's bouncing, you know. And he wheeled around. He said, okay, we have to do, we have to do a chest x-ray. We have to, you know, they just re-ran. She just got out of the hospital from three days on an IV antibiotic drip, and she was still on antibiotics. And they... They did all of this testing again, and she had double pneumonia again. Both lungs were filled with fluid, and I said, that's a symptom of nerve agent poisoning. That's how you die, is that you, your, your lungs fill with fluid, and then you suffocate. 
And they said, no, 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 it can't be from this poisoning, ma'am. And I said, I want to go to a larger hospital. I want to be transferred to a larger hospital. And so we went to a very well-recognized um, hospital that was there close by us, a children's hospital. And we had her transferred by ambulance there. In the, the children's hospital, they ran tests. They, same thing. She has double pneumonia, and the cause would have been a febrile seizure. A febrile seizure is caused by a temperature, a high temperature. Well, her maximum temperature during this whole time was 100 degrees. That's, that's not high. That's not, it's barely outside the range of normal. And so they said, and they tested her for epilepsy. There was no epilepsy. Um, and it was, they knew that it was quite unusual that she was released just three days before and her lungs were clear. And then all of a sudden she, her lungs are filled again with fluid so suddenly, even though she was on antibiotics. And so they went through all of their, their testing and said, we're just going to say that it was a febrile seizure. And that was the final diagnosis. And she was put on loading high, high doses of phenobarbital, which is an, an anticonvulsant drug. And they sent us home again. Um, before they sent us home, I, 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 I was a reasonable person. I know that moms can get you know, really upset when it comes to their children. And I still do get upset when it comes to my children. You know, you're, you're like the mother bear. But I was very reasonable, and I explained, listen, I have training in chemical warfare. This is an organophosphate. It's chloropyrifos. I've already checked. By this time, I checked with the exterminating company, and I wanted to know exactly the name of the chemical that they sprayed. And I said, it is chloropyrifos. It's an organophosphate. These are symptoms of organophosphate poisoning. Would you please do a cholinesterate level? Cholinesterate is a way you can measure if you've been poisoned or not. And it's, it's something that checks. It's a liver enzyme that, that you can check. And so they said, no, we will not check her cholinesterate. It's a simple blood draw to check the cholinesterate level. No, because she was not poisoned. I will never forget the day. You know, some things are just drilled into your mind. You can replay them like you can replay a videotape. That I sat in this children's hospital and there were all these neurologists, because this was the top case that they were working on here in, the, in this hospital. And the neurologists, several of them, sat in my room. And the, the head neurologist looked at me right in the eyes and leaned forward a little bit and said, Mrs. Hurd, you are barking up the wrong tree. This is not organophosphate poisoning. Go home. So I went home. You know, you question yourself at that point. You know, here I am, just this little girl from, you know, at that point we were in Illinois, you know, and I was raised in Missouri. I'm just a little girl from Missouri. Yeah, I have some training from the United States Army and know a whole lot about, you know, chemical warfare. But, you know, these are doctors. And there were nine neurologists on our case, nine doctors telling me, you were wrong. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about, lady. And I thought, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. So we go back home to our house that still smelled and reeked of this, this Dursban 2E. That was the name of the, the chemical they sprayed. And we were not there long. We were there for a very short time. And Ruth, 
started to have this slight cough. She had the diarrhea. And I thought, I don't think she's going to seize. She didn't start with the tremors. I don't think she's going to seize because she's on these massively high doses of phenobarbital, which would prevent a seizure from happening. But that won't prevent her lungs from filling with fluid. And if her lungs fill with fluid, she will suffocate. And so she will just sort of drift off into a semi-comatose, quote, sleep. I will put her in her crib for her nap, and I will come in there and she will be dead. And I am not going to do that. I am not going to let this happen. And so I gathered her and my other two children, and we walked out of that house, and I did not return. And I started to call every poison control center in the United States that I could, you know, and explain my situation. And, and they said, well, no, we've never heard of that before. And, you know, why don't you try this poison control center? Why don't you call here, there, you know? And so eventually I talked to a poison control center in Dallas, Texas. And they said, you know, you really need to talk to Dr. Sheldon Wagner. He works at the university in Corvallis, Oregon. And he's a child toxicologist, and this is his specialty. In this time when I'm doing all this research, trying somewhere, somebody help me. We're living in a hotel because I was not going back to that house. And the, the, I had investigated labs in St. Louis and said, hey, would you come and check the carpet levels and check the levels of organophosphate in my home? And they said, no. I mean, yes, they're happy to come out, but it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And I didn't have that money. And it's just like, what are we? I don't, and nobody is supporting me. No one was supporting me. Everybody looked at, there was one person that supported me. It was my father. He said, Karen, Whatever you think, you're smart lady. You just, he was, he was behind me. But I just, I, I, I was overwhelmed. I was also not feeling well. I was very ill. Our other children was ill. My husband was ill. I hadn't been carrying a baby when all of this happened and I miscarried that baby. Oh my goodness. And so no one can ever say, you know, was that miscarriage because of the organophosphate poisoning or not. But there is no doubt in my mind that it was, that it was the organophosphate poisoning. Because since then, I've done tremendous amounts of research on organophosphates. And that's one thing it's going to do is it can cause a miscarriage. And so I am not well, and I am trying to get to the bottom of this. And so I call this Dr. Sheldon Wagner, hoping, you know, to get through to him. Because in all this, you, you always get shunted to the next person. Well, I don't know. I'll have you talk to my supervisor. And the supervisor says, well, I don't know. I'll have you talk to my supervisor. You know, you tell your story again and again, and you just keep going and going. And just somebody help me? Well, I called the university in Corvallis and talked to the person who was in charge of the department of the university where Dr. Sheldon worked. And he said, she said, I will put you on the line to Dr. Wagner. And so I, there I was speaking to Dr. Sheldon Wagner myself. And I explained the whole situation. And I said, the doctors have told me it's not possible that she was poisoned. He said, that's absolutely false. Of course she could be poisoned. Why haven't they done a cholinesterate level? Have they done a cholinesterate level? I said, no, I asked them to do that, but they refused. He said, give me your doctor's name, please, and his phone number. 
And he said, and you need to have your carpet tested because this particular chloropyrifos breaks down with this much a half-life and we need to have it tested to see how strong it is in the carpet. And I said, well, the problem is the labs here in St. Louis. He says, they charge so much. He said, send it to me. He says, I have a lab here at the university. I will test your carpet for free. This is the dimensions I need you to cut out of your carpet. I want one from under the crib. I want one from the living room. I went, and, he, and I want it mailed to me next day air on dry ice. We did all that. And he also wanted a, a sample of my breast milk because Ruth was not well. Ruth is the name of my daughter that was poisoned, my 18-month-old. She, she would not eat food. She was very weak. She was not well at all. And so she only would nurse. She wouldn't eat food at all. And so I sent a sample of my breast milk with all of that. And then within 30 minutes of me hanging up the phone with Dr. Sheldon Wagner from that first conversation, I got a phone call from our physician. And he said, uh, Mrs. Hurd, I just had a phone call from Dr. Sheldon Wagner, and he's advised me to go to the, to the medical library and to read several articles on organophosphate poisoning. And he also recommended that she have a cholinesterate level. Could you please bring her in for that? We did all those things. We sent the carpet in. We went in for the cholinesterate level. It all came back positive. Ruth had cholinesterate levels that were abnormal. She had been poisoned. Dr. Sheldon Wagner did all the testing on the carpet. The amount of organophosphate in the carpet was 100 times the safe level of organic phosphate. Wow. She had been poisoned. And so I will say the administrator at St. Louis Children's Hospital, the chief administrator of the hospital, this is a very large hospital in St. Louis, called me apologized, said, the neurologists on the floor should have listened to you. We apologize. We are so sorry. We should have run the cholinesterate level, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's, they're sorry. But now I said, okay, so what do we do now? She's been poisoned. She's not well. And every day she was worse and worse. She began to, she broke out with warts all over her hands. I mean, they were just like little seed warts. Some were big warts, but just covered with warts. And her, then she started getting them around her mouth and her eyes and all over her face. And she had a urinary tract infection that wouldn't go away despite the antibiotics. And she was, she couldn't even walk through the grass without breaking out in hives. She couldn't even just be in the house without breaking out in hives. And all the physicians, we took her to specialists, said, her immune system is completely compromised. Her liver enzymes were elevated. Her liver was failing. Her immune system had failed. And they said, you know, now that it was confirmed it was organophosphate, that she would probably not live for long and that if she doesn't die of one of these horrible reactions or an infection because she has no immune system, she would die of cancer. And they also, one of the specialists we took her to, Said, and so will everybody else in your family that was exposed. You'll all die of cancer in the next five years. Oh, oh my goodness me. It's just like, oh, this is overwhelming. And so, and in the meantime, we're, we're living in a hotel. And so we, and, and so we're not in our home. We're displaced. We're none of us are feeling well. And then we want to go back to our home. We had to have the Environmental Protection Agency clear the home because all the carpet had to be pulled out and hauled away to a special waste facility, hazardous waste facility. They came in with air sniffers and had to test the air to make sure it was clear. And, and, and then everything had to be wiped down with super subtropical bleach to break down the organophosphates that had permeated into the walls. And it was terrible. It was a horrible time. 
And the specialists, we conferred with specialists not just in St. Louis, but we conferred with specialists on the health conditions of Ruth, particularly because she was not recovering. She was sliding more and more towards death's door every day. And we took her to a specialist in Chicago, and we conferred on the phone with specialists in Dallas, and the prognosis was always the same. She doesn't have long to live, and there is nothing you can do. I will never forget the day sitting in the specialist's office in St. Louis, and he said, we would like to do a, a liver biopsy. And I said, a liver biopsy? I said, that's not going to help her get better. I need ways to help her get better. And he says, Mrs. Hurd, I've told you before, there's nothing we can do, but it would be nice to have a liver biopsy. And I said, you want to chronicle her death, don't you? He says, well, yes, we've never seen anyone die of organophosphate poisoning before. <sighs> and so I said, no. There'll be no liver biopsy. They're painful. They're, they're, no. And I said, I'm leaving and I won't be coming back. You give me no hope and no, no answer. No way to build the immune system. No way to reverse this. So I left. And then now what do I do? I go to the library. That's what I have to do. I, I have to learn something. So in St. Louis, there's a school. It's Washington University. It's a medical school. And I went to the library there, and I began to look at everything, everything I can. You know, this is back in the, this all happened in 1989, December of 1989. And so now we're into January of, of 1990. And so everything's on microfiche, and you know. And so I am reading microfiche and, you know, learning everything I can about organophosphate poisoning, about recovery, how you recover the liver, her kidneys were failing, her liver was failing, everything, her immune system had failed. Every, what do you do? I read everything from the latest research from the National Institutes of Health to snake oil remedies, everything that I could. And then I finally cobbled together my own solution. Based on everything I read, I knew that I had to somehow help her liver. That was the thing, that was the organ that was clearing this chloropyrifos, the organophosphate. That's where I had to start. So then I made, Ruth was still not eating. By now she is very weak. She could barely walk or lift her head. And so I, I took and I put into an oral syringe what I thought she should have because she wasn't eating. All she would do was nurse and only some of that breastfeed. And so then I, I would shoot down the back of her throat this concoction that I made up. And a week passed, and she was a little bit better in two weeks and three weeks. And then the warts were clearing up. And she had gaining strength and energy. By the end of six weeks, she was well. Oh, and by the way, she wasn't on the antibiotics anymore. They had stopped that because it wasn't pneumonia. It was an organophosphate poisoning. No need for antibiotics. They had stopped the phenobarbital because we were no longer exposed to it. And she wasn't going to seize unless she was exposed to organophosphate. So she wasn't on any medications. All she was doing is the things that I was giving her. And in six weeks, she was well. And so it was, it was wide, wide open, I mean, eye-opening to me that all this happened with just my little, you know, trying to help my little girl. I did not call the newspapers. The doctors did check her. She was well. They couldn't believe it. And so I thought, well, that's the end. We just have to hope that there's not going to be permanent neurological damage. And so we go on. And then 
what occurred then after that is there was an article that appeared, and I never called the newspapers. There was a small, little, tiny article that appeared in our local St. Louis newspaper, and it said, little girl who was poisoned lives. The girl who lived, that wasn't the title of the article. I, that's the title. I Someday, well, maybe if I write a whole book on it, I'll call it The Girl Who Lived. Anyway, but then, you know, that takes off of, you know, Harry Potter, the boy who lived. But anyway, so all of that said is that the girl, my little girl was alive. And so because of that newspaper article, I started getting calls of people saying, hey, could you help me with this and that? And I said, I don't know anything about your condition. I am not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not anything. My, my, I have a background. I have, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish and a minor in German, you know. Um, and then I have my training from the United States Army, and that's all I have. And they said, we don't care. We want, we want to, we want, would you help me? And I said, well, I guess I can go down to Wash U, Washington U, and, and, and read in the library. And so I did. And I would say, well, if it was me, I would do this, or that, or whatever. And they started to get better. And then this went on for a while. And then, then I got a call from Southwestern Bell Telephone, and they do these brown bag luncheons where they have a speaker come in and on the lunch break of their employees, and they have lots of employees. This is the, they were in one bell tower in St. Louis. It's this huge skyscraper, and they filled a whole, whole building with their employees. And they said, would you come? We've had so many requests for you to come and speak to our employees during one of our brown bag luncheons. I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? And I, I'd have to go down and study. You know, you know I have no credentials. We know. But we want you to come because you're in popular demand. And so then I started doing a brown bag. And then there would be over 300 people that were gathered to listen to me in this, this auditorium there at their offices. And then I did those. And then pretty soon other people started asking me to lecture. And, and then I got a call from the University of Missouri saying, would you teach? And I said, I don't have any credentials. I don't have a degree in this. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Foreign Languages. And they said, we know it would really be helpful if you get a degree. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so that put me on the path of formal education. So I went through, did my nutritional training. And then that's what that I did. And then I started my practice. My practice actually began right after Ruth's poisoning. But then I went on and got further training, and now I have a master's of science in biochemistry, and then I'm currently, I will never stop learning. Never stop learning. I will, every day, the day that I stop learning is the day that I die, and I'm always enrolled in class and always enrolled in another way to increase my knowledge. Ruth is now 32 years old. She's happy. She's healthy. She is sensitive to things. I mean, she's sensitive to chemicals, and so... She, we avoid all chemicals. We avoid all of those type of routes into her body, but she is well. She graduated college with a double major, and she's actually a mother. She just had her first little baby in May. So, oh, what an amazing end of the story. What we, I'm sure, all the listeners want to know is what was the concoction? The main ingredient in the concoction was soluble fiber because soluble fiber has the ability to clear the biofluids that the liver releases. The liver clears out all fat-soluble waste, and this organophosphate is a fat-soluble waste. And so I, and the, what I used was psyllium, because psyllium is a, 
is a mucolage. It's a soluble fiber. And then, then when the bile is, that's carrying all this waste product, it goes down into our gastrointestinal tract. And once it's in the gastrointestinal tract, then the bile, uh, it actually helps digest your fats, but it travels down through your small colon. And at the last part of your small colon, the terminal part of your ileum, we absorb fats. Bile is a fat. That's the only way it can carry fat-soluble waste, is it has to be a fat. And so then all our fat-soluble waste is reabsorbed. It's called the enterohepatic recirculation. And 95% of our biofluids and 95% of the toxins that we are clearing are recycled and dumped back into the human bloodstream. And so what I needed to do was interrupt that and have all this stuff excreted into the toilet. And soluble fiber binds with the bile in the gastrointestinal tract and causes it to be excreted because no fiber can be absorbed through the, through the intestinal tract. All of it is excreted. 100% of fiber is excreted, whether it's insoluble or soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is the only thing that could bind up. It actually captures the bile molecules and causes them to be excreted. So it, so from my understanding, it's that the, the, the toxins need to bind to something in order to come out. Otherwise, they're going to be recycled around the system. And so the only thing that they can bind to is fiber. Yes, th that would be, that is a very simplified way to put it. The yes, simplified, yeah. yeah. The layman's terms. And In so the layman's what you, term, yes. What were you giving her then? And what, what type of fiber was helping this, all these toxins to be excreted? The fiber that, because she wouldn't eat any foods until she started to get better. And then I began to give her beans because beans have the right fiber. I had to put psyllium. Psyllium is psyllium a... husk. Psyllium husk, yes. It's the husk to the plantago seed. It's a, it's a soluble fiber, but it has this property more so than like a cassia powder, inulin, dextrin. There's several different types of soluble fiber. But the psyllium is, is a type of mucolage that is able to capture that biomolecule most effectively. And in that biomolecule, they're called micelles, is the poison or whatever we're trying to get rid of, the liver's trying to get rid of. And then it's, it, it forms a complex net. It's a soluble fiber is, is a, a, a polysaccharide, and it forms, forms this very complex net, tight mesh net that just captures it. And so you're caught in the net, and the whole net's going into the toilet, and whatever happens to be caught inside the net gets thrown away too. So then sure. if you do it for long enough, then you keep catching it in that net, presumably. Yes, yes, because you continue to take in the soluble fiber. You consume it, and then all of it catches, because you're releasing bile 24-7. You never stop producing bile. You're always recycling bile or producing bile. So the more often you eat that soluble fiber, then the more bile you're throwing away. The more bile you throw away, you detoxify. And that's how Ruth got better. We threw away the recirculating organophosphate. And you learned all of this, you kind of put this together through going to the library, reading as much as you could, and you kind of just pieced this all together yourself. I mean, it's just amazing. Yes. Yes. Because you don't have anybody else out there, even today. I mean, we're talking 30 years later, that, you yeah. know, a little over 30 years later, that, you know, I'm still preaching the same message. I mean, this is 
the whole enterohepatic recirculation and eating a soluble fiber is like a, a hallmark piece of my practice. It doesn't solve everything. I mean, you know, we still have to, you know, we got to get rid of other junk in our life and not eat garbage. And But it is a hallmark piece and it's one that has been overlooked. But yeah, I just, I, all I did, I mean, I read tons in that library and I just had to piece it together. There was no one article that said, oh, do this or do that. It's just like, no, but if it just was like a light bulb went on in my head. Yeah, well, it's that mother's instinct, isn't it? And it comes back to that that uh, saying or meme, whatever it is about, you know, there's no greater detective than a mother who wants to help her child. Uh, my mum did the same thing when I was diagnosed with arthritis and I was two and they just before I was two and they wanted to put me on high doses of steroids and she knew nothing about natural therapies or anything, but it didn't sit right with her. So she also, she took herself to the library and... Um, yes. Ruth and I will be forever grateful, I'm sure. Um, yes, yes. So what I want to know then is, right, so with Ruth it was toxins and it was a poison. But I know you treat pretty much most illnesses out there. So what if it's not a poison? You know, how, we, how do we, can you explain that if it's autoimmune diseases or, or kind of anything? What, what is the fibre then doing? Well, first of all, you have to know that the fiber is carrying out fat-soluble waste. And the vast majority of our waste products are fat-soluble. And these are normal metabolic wastes. For us just to live and to breathe, we have to make certain hormones. Hormones are the number one thing that our livers, or our liver, we only have one liver, that our liver is clearing. And so when we... What the liver pulls out hormones and it pulls out anything else you're taking in, different medications or something like that. They have to be cleared. And so the liver clears these things. To give you an idea of the, the importance of the liver, we have three filtration systems in our body. One is the lymphatic system, which is composed of all your lymph nodes, your spleen. And so that mainly deals with bacteria, virus, fungus. And then we have the kidneys, which filter our blood. The lymphatic system is also filtering blood. The kidneys filter our blood for water-soluble waste. And then the liver filters our blood for fat-soluble waste. So three separate filtration systems. Well, so let's go start back with the lymphatic system. If your lymphatic system fails you, how sick will you be? Well, you can be pretty sick, but you're not going to die. I mean, people have their spleens removed, which is a big part of the lymphatic, you know, system. They have all kinds of lymph nodes stripped out. I mean, women who have undergone a mastectomy, you know, will get all their lymph nodes stripped from their, underneath their arm or down their arm or, you know, their side. And, you know, so we can lose a lot of that and we still function and we're fine and we can live a long and healthy, I'll put healthy in quotes here, life. So it's a good system, but it's not, you know, it's not as critical as, say, the kidneys. If your kidneys fail you, and it's clearing water-soluble waste, if we cannot clear the water-soluble waste that's circulating in your bloodstream, uh, if your kidneys fail you, you'll die in about, oh, two weeks, and you'll be dead. And you'll die in your own poison because you're not clearing it. So that's bad. You know, that's really bad. You don't want your kidneys to fail. What happens if your liver fails? If your liver fails to clear the fat-soluble waste, you will die in less than 24 hours. That's how toxic the waste is that the liver is clearing. The liver is the most important as far as clearing toxic waste. And so 
we have to look at, okay, well, so what's the toxic waste? We have chemicals that we could breathe in. There's air pollution. There's medications that we take. There's, you know, perfumes and fragrances are toxic waste. There's lots of things. But there's your own, the vast, vast majority of what the liver is clearing is your own waste. Because every chemical reaction results in metabolic waste. And the liver is clearing those fat-soluble wastes. And if you didn't, if you didn't, weren't exposed to any air pollution, you weren't exposed to any outside, you know, contaminant, and it was just you in a healthy environment, and your liver stopped functioning, you will still die in less than 24 hours because you didn't clear your own waste from just all the chemical reactions that happen. So it's very important that we do that. And so many of our problems are caused because we do not clear our own waste. We recycle 95% of it on a regular basis. I don't know how they eat in the UK, I, you know, I've, although I've heard, but, you know, in it's the pretty United similar. It's pretty similar to you guys. Okay. In the <laughs> United States, the, the, we used to eat soluble fiber, which are beans. Beans are your source of soluble fiber. Things like pinto beans, navy beans, garbanzo beans, lentils. And we used to eat beans in our country all the way up to the early 1900s because that was the staple. I mean, that's what we could have. But when we had the advent of the flour mill in the early 1900s, who wants beans for breakfast when you can have bread? Because now we can have bread that's easily, you know, we can buy flour and it's really easy to make and, you know, forget beans. And we moved away from eating beans. And now in our country, I mean, sometimes you might have beans if you go to a Mexican restaurant, you know, that's about it. Nobody eats beans. And so we have all these health problems because we're not clearing our fat-soluble waste. And so is it then triggering something that you might already have a genetic predisposition to because it's just this these toxins are kind of floating around the system. So if you've got a genetic predisposition to something and your body's too, too toxic, it kind of, the toxic load gets too much and it just triggers it? Yes. It can. It absolutely can. And genetics do play a part into this. Um, we have changes. The human genome is set. You are going to get half of your DNA from your mom and half of your DNA from your dad. And that is set. But once we have our DNA given, we have um, a process. When every cell undergoes a mitosis. A mitosis is when one cell dies, basically and it's replaced by another one. It means that the cell has reached its life cycle and it has to be replaced by a new cell. And before it can be replaced, it has to undergo, the DNA has to be copied exactly from the parent cell, the cell that is ready to be replaced. That DNA is going to be copied. That's called a, a, a process of transcription. And then that has to be, that copy has to be turned into the actual molecule or the actual protein. There are actually proteins that are made. Then those proteins make up the different molecules which make up the cells. And so then we replace that. Well, once we copy the DNA and it's being translated, and there can be point mutations. They're, calling poly, they're called polymorphisms, which I'm doing a lot of work in currently in polymorphisms, but oh, we can get onto that after. Another... I'm very interested. No, I'm interested in that. We can talk about that after. Okay. Yes. But so we, once we have the, the transcribed DNA and all those proteins are folded and they're into their right shape, 
there are post-modificational changes that occur on the genome. We call them epigenetic. And so these changes will occur. There are several processes. There's ubiquization. There's methylization. There's many pro processes that can occur on the surface of that particular molecule. And our environment, things that we, whether you smoke, your air pollution, you alcohol, I mean, you just name it. There are many things that are influencing these changes on the phenotype. This is a phenotype. The genome, let me just explain a little bit so we are clear. There, there's just two different things. The genotype is your DNA. There it is. It's just the DNA, just the way you inherited it. But then it's how is the DNA expressed? How, how do you, ha what is the phenotype? For instance, identical twins. By the way, I have grandsons. They're not from Ruth. They're from my first child, Catherine. She has identical twin boys. They have Exactly. We've had them genotyped because I'm, I'm, I'm big into genetics. So <laughs> they're genotyped. They have an exact match DNA. But I'm with these children all the time. Their phenotype is different. Now they look exactly the same. I mean, if you look at them, you, if you, but they have different expressions and they have different personalities and they're, they have different, different, different responses to the same stimuli. And so their phenotype, how they're being expressed, is affected by epigenetics, which is affected by our environment and our exposures and everything that we go through in life. So, yeah, that's, it's a very, and what's really encouraging about that is that that's something that we can help modulate, that we can help affect. So if you are not exposed for, say, cigarette smoke, then we do not have to have the continual expression of that phenotype because the DNA is still being copied the way it was. It's just those post-modificational changes that happen after the transcription and translation process. Mm. It gives a lot of hope, doesn't it, that uh, yes. we, we can control to some extent the outcome of our health and we can keep ourselves healthy regardless of what genetic mutations or polymorphisms we might have. Um, yes. And I, that's what I love about epigenetics. It just kind of, it doesn't mean that this is set in stone. We, we totally have the control to change it. And I love that. Um, yes. So you have a very huge database of people that you've helped over the years. Um, yes. And oh, yes. Uh, remind me of that number because I think people will enjoy knowing that. Well, I stopped counting them over, I stopped counting them about five or 10 years ago. And then I was getting many new clients every week and now I'm still getting them. But when I stopped counting, it was over 35,000. So I, and since then it's, wow. I'm sure it's blown way past, way past 50,000. I don't know. It was, it's, it's like, it's just one more thing to and do when I have And these are people so that have had success. Yes. Oh yes. These are. The ones that don't have success are the ones who are, I call them non-compliant. They're people that just love their coffee. You know, they love their sugar. They don't believe that perfumes and fragrances really do anything bad to you. Oh my goodness, they are horrible for you. And they actually will mutate your DNA. So, I mean, you can permanently change your DNA. They can do so many bad things. But, you know, they don't, they don't embrace it. But the ones who do... Yes, success story after success story after success story. So. so so talk to me about those factors. You're saying coffee, 
uh, perfumes, what are the biggest factors, would you say, in terms of um, toxicity and things that are preventing us from being well? Well, there are so many of them that buy for first place. Um, if we could list kind of a handful of them that would be the most important ones. Sugar, caffeine, perfumes and fragrances, and that probably tops the list. Perfumes and fragrances, and that includes essential oils. Um, and then... Alcohol? Uh, alcohol, yes, only if it's over-consumed. Um, you know, if you did two, you know, glasses of wine per week, you're really not going to see that much, you know, damage. But if you're drinking every night, we got a problem. I mean, that's just too hard. Um, we have a fats issue, too. Um, the saturated fats versus good fats, which are unsaturated fats. And there's a, this terrible mistaken run to coconut oil in our society today, which is the most saturated fat we have that causes radical oxidative species. Saturated fats always causes radical oxidative species, which is something that can actually damage DNA. But yeah, at the top of the list, I would put the perfumes, fragrances, including that, the essential oils, sugar, and caffeine. Mm. And it's very interesting about the coconut oil because I fall victim to that because um, I was using coconut oil for years. Um, so why is coconut oil so bad? Because of the molecular structure of its of the fat chain, all fats are long are long chains of carbon atoms, and a carbon atom has to attach to four other atoms. On on it's just think of you having an arm to left and the right, and say you had four arms and one at the top and coming coming out the other direction. So in four different cardinal points, we got these directions of these bonds. These these need to have a bond and carbon has to have four bonds. It's not like, well, you know, it's convenient to have four bonds. No, it has to. It will have four bonds. This is just straight chemistry. It's like saying two plus two is four. It's always two plus two is always going to be four. So we're going to have four bonds. We just have to have four bonds. And so in a fat, the molecule is, it has a head and then it's it's got an oxygen up there and some carbons and, and hydrogens, of course. But then you have this long, 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 long chain of carbons. Most fats have 18 carbons. So a carbon is an atom. And so then it's going to be bound, the carbon, let's just take a carbon in the middle of this long chain, is bound to the left, on the left with, and well, I'm going to call it left and right, but I mean they're at different angles, but left and right to a carbon. And then it's got two more. It's going to make two more bonds. And so what's it going to bond with? It's going to bond with a hydrogen. That's how fats are made, hydrogens. And so then it has the potential to bind with two hydrogens, and it does. And so all along the chain, you'll have all these carbons bound to each other, and then hydrogens on the top and the bottom position, if you will, although they can be another position too. There's trans and cis formations. But anyway, you've got two hydrogens and two carbons that are bound together. And at the very end of the chain, you have your final carbon, which is the omega end. Omega means end, and it's the end, and that's where we start counting our carbons. It's got three hydrogens. So the more hydrogens that you have on the chain then it is saturated. Saturated with what? It's saturated with hydrogen atoms. You can have fats where the carbon is doubly bonded to the next door carbon. So instead of having a single bond to the carbon on its left or its right and two hydrogens attached, it's doubly bonded 
to the carbon next to it. And so that means it's bound to the carbon on the other side, and it can only have one hydrogen, not two, just one hydrogen. And because of that double bond, it's called a pi bond, they're, they're fabulous bonds. If we can break that pi bond, and we can, the body can break that pi bond. The pi bond is the second bond that's formed in that carbon atom to the next carbon atom. Then you can bring in a functional group, which is another molecule, another, another, another particle, if you will, it's a molecule, and it can attach to that carbon fat, that carbon chain, and then you make something new out of it, such as a steroid, a hormone that would help you with if someone had arthritis or some inflammatory condition and what reduce the inflammation. And so it is, it's a way to have the, the molecule react without a tremendous amount of effort. And those are called unsaturated fats. Why is it an unsaturated fat? Because it's not saturated with hydrogen ions. And so the hydrogen, the more hydrogen you put into something, then the more saturated it becomes. And so why is that so bad? It's because this is a very stable molecule. All the carbons are bonded. There's no pi bonds anywhere, no double bonds. And so what we have is a stable molecule is very happy. It doesn't want to react with anything. I mean, it's just, just a nice piece of fat molecule, and it is not going to do any play. I say it doesn't like to play. It doesn't like to play games on the playground, and it doesn't. So what if we need those carbons, and we need to make it into a hormone? How can we make it chemically reactive because it's non-reactive in its state of the saturated fat. Well, there's only one way to do that. We have to get double bonds. You have to have a double bond between the carbon atoms. So to get a double bond, you have to, to get rid of one of the hydrogens and force the carbons to double bond. Well, how do you do that? There's only one way to do that, and that's through an oxidative process. You have to go through the beta oxidation process that occurs in the mitochondria of the cells. And so you say, well, what's bad about that? Oxidation is what's bad about that. Oxidation creates a radical oxidative species. There is this flash moment in time in this chemistry that will happen in making this bad fat, saturated fats or bad fats, into a good fat, which is an unsaturated fat. And there's this moment in time that carbon is only going to have three bonds, only three bonds. And this is, a, this is a really big deal. You cannot have three bonds. You must have four. You must have four. And then there's this, uh, this you create a radical oxidative species that is un, it's the electrons. There has, this has to do with electrons. They're unbalanced. They're not, they're not paired. Electrons have to pair. And so they will grab and take another electron from another atom, which is a part of a molecule, which is a part of the cell. And in this taking and grabbing of, of electrons to be able to make yourself stable, this particular oxidation process, you can actually, there is such force, these things are moving fast and furious that they can drive through the cell and actually penetrate the plas or the nuclear envelope and hit your DNA. If you hit your DNA, you can change the nucleotide sequence. The, our DNA is made of nucleotides in these three-member sequences called codons. And you can actually change your DNA. You mutate your DNA. This is bad.
So let's go back to the original question. So coconut oil. It is the most saturated fat that we have. Everything has a little bit of saturated fat. Even if you do the beautiful oils like the icosapentaenoic acid or the cosahexaenoic acid, these are fish oils. Fish oil is a wonderful fat. It is an unsaturated fat. But if you look at it, there's a very small percentage that's saturated. Yes, because oxidation will happen on just a normal basis because we are exposed to the air. And, the, and our air is oxygen, mostly nitrogen, but it has a lot of oxygen too. And so oxidation is a natural over time process that will occur, but it's in such a small amount. And then, you know, proponents of coconut oil, it, it's just because they don't know the chemistry of fats. They're good people. They just, just don't understand the whole chemistry of fats. But they'll say, but coconut oil is a medium chain triglyceride. Who cares if it's a medium chain triglyceride? It still doesn't have any double bonds between the carbons. A medium chain triglyceride means that it only has somewhere between 10 to 15 carbons in the chain instead of the normal 18. Well, what about fish oil? Is it a short chain, a medium chain? It's a long chain fatty acid. It has over 20 carbons in the chain. It doesn't matter how many carbons in the chain. It just matters how are the carbons bonded to each other and how many hydrogens are attached. That's the real critical piece. And coconut oil is more saturated, has more hydrogens attached to it than any other substance that we have on the planet Earth. More so than beef lard, pig lard, chicken fat, shortening, whatever you name, butter, margarine, all of those things are saturated fats. But coconut oil way outstrips the rest of them. So then we're looking at oxidative damage. And a, a and a fat that doesn't play well. And if you don't oxidize it, if you don't need it, where is it stored? It's stored on you as fat. And adipose tissue. And I haven't even, yeah, and that goes into some place too, because whenever you tuck something into adipose tissue, you get an adipokine made. And when you have adipokine made, that's what causes inflammation. <laughs> I just love how passionate you are about this. And when I oh. took your course, um, we'll get on to talking about your courses in a second. I listened to that bit about saturated fats um, three times to try and make sure that I really took it all in. Um, but what you talk about, um, is one, one of those, leaving one of those bonds open and then eating healthy fats like nuts or avocados or things like that. So tell me what happens when we do that. When you eat the healthy fats like nuts, avocados, olive oil, these are unsaturated fats. And Everybody can know this without looking up, you know, well, how many carbons, how are they double bonded? And you can look those up. It's really very interesting to see all the bonds. But you can just know this. Everyday person can know it. If your fat is liquid at room temperature, it is unsaturated. It's good. If it's solid or, you know, like bacon grease at room temperature is sort of this solid, greasy, you know, but it's still a solid. It's not, you can't just, you know, pour it out like you pour out olive oil or something then it's a saturated fat. And the harder the fat is at room temperature, like wax or whatever, then the more saturated it is. So that's the way you tell the good fats from the bad fats. Now, the good fats, let's go back to our nuts or our olive oil or our avocados. They are loaded with the good fats. Some of them are omega-3s, omega-6, omega-9s. This is just a side point you might be interested in. Why do we call them omega-3s, 6s, 9s? It's because that's where the double bonds are. We count carbons. We All carbons in a molecule. Molecules get numbered, you know, the atoms get numbered so we can keep track of them in chemistry and so we know where reactions are happening on which carbon. And so 
we count the carbons from the omega end. So that's the very last carbon in that chain, and that's carbon number one. And then there's carbon number two and carbon number three. And between carbon three and carbon four in an omega-3 fatty acid, there's a double bond. And then there's carbon five, six, and then you just keep going on. Between six and seven, there's another double bond. You have an omega-6. Between nine and 10, carbon nine and 10, if you have a double bond, that's an omega-9. And the, the, these saturated these unsaturated fats with the double bonds are what give us this chemical reactivity that we can do something with, like make a steroid to reduce pain and inflammation. And so to do, to do that breaking of the bond, in chemistry, you, the, the, it, reactions just usually don't happen spontaneously. Some few reactions will happen spontaneously. They just occur. But most bonds, you have to have some type of catalyst, or you've got to do something to make it happen. Well, to break the, the pi bond, the, that double bond, in a fat, you have to input energy. It, it, to break a bond, it is an endothermic reaction. That means you have to put energy in to be able to break the bond. Well, we, how do we get energy? Well, those come, the energy comes from electrons. So we have to have an electron that is available and willing to go in there and break the pi bond so then we can bring in the functional group to attach to that fatty acid and make the steroid that we need. And then, so how do we get an electron? We do that by ions. Ions are, are atoms. Sometimes they're molecules, like a bicarbonate ion is, is a molecule. So it's sodium bicarbonate, and then we have the sodium separates from the um, carbonate ion, and then we have a positively negative charged particle. But we need to look at something like salt, because people, people can eat avocados with salt on them. People can eat nuts with salt on them. Because the salt, what happens when you take the salt in and it's with the oil at the time of consumption, that salt is going to ionize in solution in the sodium, salt is sodium chloride. And there's not, the sodium ion, or sodium molecule, or it's not a molecule, it's an atom. Sodium atom is going to separate from the chloride atom. And the sodium is going to carry a positive charge. And the chloride ion is going to carry a negative charge. And that negative charge is coming from an electron that is available. And so the sodium, we don't worry about the sodium. It becomes a spectator ion. That means it doesn't get involved in a chemical reaction here, but that chloride ion will, and it will break the pi bond because that electron is providing, we call it an electron well. It's providing a source of energy to break that bond. So when we're going to eat these good oils, they need to be salted. You need to be eating a salted avocado or salted nuts, not unsalted. And people say, well, what about if you have high blood pressure? Well, first of all, we have to determine, is your high blood pressure really caused by too much sodium? If it is, well, then let's just cut all the rest of the sodium out of your diet. And when you just eat your good fats, then you have your little bit of salt on there. So, I mean, we, but most high blood pressure, I mean, it can be caused by an increase in sodium in the bloodstream, but mostly it's because it's an adrenaline response and you have vasoconstriction of the blood vessels. And then, and then there also is some calcium involved in here too with the calcium keeps the blood vessels open. That's another subject for another day. But anyway, so... That's how the that's how you need to have a pie bond broken. Yeah, that was interesting because I I now you know I'm eating all my fats with salt. So um, you know, and I'd never heard that mm -hmm. before. So now, how do we find the balance between healthy fats and making sure we've got enough, but not having too much that we actually start 
storing that as fat? It's pretty easy because if you, you're never going to get too much unless you start to gain weight. Your body is going to take, because you're making hormones on demand, your pituitary, which is the master control gland of your endocrine glands, your endocrine glands make hormones for you. All hormones, by the way, with the exception of thyroxin, all hormones, and you make a lot of them, are made out of fats. And so your pituitary is calling for the production of, say, estrogen or a cortical steroid or norepinephrine or epinephrine, and all these are made out of fats. So when it calls for it and you have enough fats there that are unsaturated, you will immediately going to be making them into those hormones that the, the pituitary is calling for. Now, if you don't need any of those hormones at the time, you're fine. You don't need extra adrenaline. You don't need extra insulin. You don't need extra, all your hormone levels are fine and you have all these extra fats and they're hanging around. They will, they will just help. They just, you just gain weight. I mean, that's what happens. And so that's how you tell if you're eating too many fats. Okay, so for instance, in my case, I'm a very busy person. I am, I am on the go. I'm constantly making epinephrine, norepinephrine. I'm very busy, and so my body is responding with the hormones I need. I eat a cup and a half of nuts, salted nuts, each day and have for years. Am I overweight at a cup and a half? No, I'm five feet six, I weigh 120 pounds. But if I started to eat two cups or three cups, which I don't even know if I could eat because I'd be so full, I don't think I possibly could eat that much. But anyway, then I could start to gain weight. Well, I'm not gaining weight. But what if this person was only, you know, five feet, five feet one and they weigh, you know, 102 pounds, uh, a cup and a half might be too much for them. So you find this balance of, okay, when am I getting too much? And then and we have other situations coming in here, too. I mean, I wish everything was just so cut and dry. What if you have gallbladder disease or you have sphincter of oddy problems? You can't have any fats. Or what if you had your large colon removed and part of your ileum removed? We're going to have to go easy on the fats because they can cause you diarrhea. or you know. So we have to, every person's situation, we have to take in the whole, you know, health picture of the person and say, well, right now you shouldn't be eating fats as good as they are. You know, but until we can get your gut healed, because fats are absorbed through that terminal part of the ileum, and then once that's healed, then we can go ahead and put the fats in there. And I love that about what you do, because I've always been a very big advocate of an individualized approach to healthcare, yes. uh, an individualized root cause approach to healthcare. Um, so I want to talk about your courses, because you've kind of found the perfect balance between being able, you've got a course pretty much for everything. Um, and for anyone listening, I would recommend, highly recommend going onto Karen's website, karenherd.com and having a look through her courses because there are pretty much, there's pretty much a course for any illness you might have. But what Karen's done is spent a long time uh, devising these courses for each particular illness so that they are uh, very specific. However, they do come back the principle is pretty much the same in most of them, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And we just have to alter things slightly according to that individual situation. And the, the nice thing about the courses is, is, like you say, you have a thyroid problem. You have hyperthyroidism or maybe you have hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease. You learn all about the thyroid gland and how it's, it's functioning and the proteins from which those, those, those hormones are made. And, and then you get this whole 
I, so you understand your situation. Then yes. you get the protocol of, you know, these are the things that you're supposed to do and not. And then as part of my courses, then I am available to anybody that's enrolled in a course. They can email me and you will, you will email. I read every single email. We get lots of emails every day and I read every single one. I know I, say, I have sent many and yes, <laughs> each yes. one has been answered by, by Ruth actually. Ruth will answer the one she can, and she actually confers with me. We have, we have a daily mm. conference, and she'll say, can I answer this one? You know, I'll say, yes, this is what you need to tell them. And then I have many that I will say, no, I need to answer this one myself, you know, and just, you know. And then, we, you know, she gets copied on all my responses so that she's also learning. Ruth, by the way, the, the Ruth that's helping me, that is the Ruth that was poisoned. I know. Yeah. That's why I was saying it. I can't tell you how happy yeah. when she replied to my email and I, and I asked, you know, what happened to Ruth? And she said, I am Ruth. And now I'm a mother. And oh, I was so happy. And I just felt like, uh, I, I don't know, this sense of just such happiness it being in, you know, emailing her, knowing that she was this little 18 month old who you were told was going to die. And now she's got a little baby of her own. So yeah. that made me really, really happy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so your courses are pretty comprehensive. And like you say, you do cover things. Um, you do go quite deep with the chemistry, but I think that's important because how can we heal ourselves without understanding what's going on in our body? Having the understanding of that helps us to be able to visualize what's going on and therefore work towards healing it. And I find that with conventional medicine, you kind of go into a doctor's office and they will give you a diagnosis and then send you home with a medication without you actually understanding what's going on with your body, um, why it's producing disease and what the medication is actually doing to, you know, quote unquote, help that. Um, so that's what I love about the courses. But um, we do, you do have so many courses, but um, if we can briefly just go through some of the most common um, ailments that afflict us today um, and just let us know kind of the sort of things you would do to tackle those. So you did just touch on thyroid and I, you know, know so many people with thyroid issues. I have suffered with hypothyroidism myself, um, which was actually triggered by having fertility treatment. Um, so yeah, so I'd love you to just briefly take us through um, hyper and hypothyroidism because I know autoimmune uh, thyroid issues are a totally separate issue, but very common now as well. Yeah, and autoimmune is another whole issue to talk oh, about. Oh, we'll get on to autoimmune diseases, but in terms of thyroid. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, understand that we as a, well, I don't even, the medical society, when we don't really understand something completely and we see something like in the thyroid where we are producing high amounts of antibodies that are, uh, targeted against the thyroid. We say, you see that's your body, it's your immune system, it's autoimmune response, that your body, your immune system is messed up. It's attacking your own thyroid. That is a hypothesis that has never been proven. I mean, you can say, well, it's proven because you have antibodies. Well, no, not necessarily. Because in an autoimmune response, it, it, and we're, I'm going to put autoimmune in quotations because I don't <laughs> think we have autoimmune responses. I think that's the hypothesis. And what's really happening is you have inflammation in your thyroid. Your thyroid is inflamed for one reason or another. It could be radical oxidative species. It could be the adipokines that we were talking about a little bit before from saturated fats. It could be that you were exposed to some chemical or something that changed 
the epigenetics, you know, that post-modificational changes that happen on the genome and that create a phenotype or the expression of the genome in the thyroid gland. There are many things that are coming in. And so the result of all of those inputs can be an inflammation of the thyroid. Well, what happens when something is inflamed in the human body? What happens when something is abnormal in the human body? What is the body's response to that? We need to fix it. And we might have to fix it by creating an antibody to say we don't want to sell anymore because it's so abrogated that we need to destroy it or disable it. It's, it's the same way we fight all inflammation, or we will put fluid around something and encapsulate it so that we can come in and try to repair the damage that is done to the DNA or on the epigen on the cell outside that's those post-modificational changes so we can get it repaired. And so is it because your immune system, did the immune system create the problem? Or was the problem there and the immune system is coming in trying to fix the problem that occurred from something else? And that is my hypothesis. Hypothesis. And so the, the autoimmune is not, we often give the words and I just, you know, just let it roll because people don't understand unless you're a scientist, you know, and then do this all of the time, that we'll call it the theory no, a theory is a proven hypothesis that has been proven over and over and over and over and over again by many different people in many different labs. This is a hypothesis. The autoimmune is a hypothesis. It is not a theory. It has never been proven. It's an assumption, an educated guess. And it's hypothesized because uh, modern, uh, you know, conventional doctors or scientists don't know another way around it or they don't understand that there's another way around it. Um, why, why have they hypothesized this? Because we don't know enough. Just like, you know, I mentioned polymorphisms before. Mm -hmm. Most polymorphisms are single nucleotide point. They're called SNPs, point mutations. And so when we haven't even begun to look at that. We know some point mutations will create a situation like we have a point mutation that makes certain people that have that it's expressing that mutation they are not as tolerant to mercury as some other people are so they like mthfr for yes, example yes that, that perfect example yes the mth that that one is a perfect example does that you know so we look at these point mutations and we say okay and we're just now starting to understand those and can we through epigenetics mitigate that just because we have that, that, ex, that expression in the phenotype, can we reverse that through epigenetic changes? That's, this is a field that is just, it's in its infancy as far as, I mean, and you, you have to understand it's just because when was the human genome finally, when did we finally go through and finish that? That was just in the, in the 90s, you know, the big human genome project. That was just completed, and since then, everything is starting to change and we're starting to look at, you know, maybe we are a little bit different. And then epigenetics is, is this huge new field within the genome field. I mean, it's just all, we just haven't had enough time to study it. And but so that's amazing, we, really, because, I mean, if scientists continue looking at epigenetics, it could be that in, say, 20 years from now, they 
are acknowledging that lifestyle factors play the biggest part. And instead of telling us all to wear masks and use antibacterial hand wash, they might be educating us on how to keep ourselves healthy. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and then and it goes to polymorphism and this change exactly goes in looking at virus. Like now I'm big into the Corona 19 and, and I have been looking at all the, I mean, I'm looking at research that was done just, you know, last week mm. on the Corona 19. It's a, it's a very particular Corona SARS virus. And in that itself, they have six different clades on this. A clade is, um, it's a group of, of, of genes that come from a parent gene and that in one place in the DNA, one of the nucleotides is switched. Well, so that changes in how you're gonna develop a vaccine to that because it means the vaccine that you develop, if you have the particular virus that has this polymorphism in it, the vac vaccine, if we develop one, and that's the big push right now, I know, is that it won't necessarily work. So we have to determine how are we going to deal with all these polymorphisms, and and so it's it's the it's incredible the amount of research that is going to have to be done. But yes, it's not only just protecting ourselves and knowing that you know how to do that, and it's also in how do we fight things. But it's very exciting. It's wonderful. There's hope. That's what I'm saying. There's hope. In the meantime, what do we do? Well, eat well, because as long as we're eating well, your body's already doing all the right things anyway. I mean, even if we don't have all the scientific explanation behind it, we are, we are, we're already in the, going in the right direction. Absolutely. So, so very briefly then, for thyroid, what would be the number one factors affecting thyroid? The number one factor affecting thyroid that I have found in my practice is that people have given up eating iodized salt. I mean, we just, people don't eat it. We have gone to you know, the Himalayan salt or the sea salt or the, you know, this kind of salt that's supposed to be so healthy and has these extra minerals in it. Oh my goodness. You're not going to get enough minerals from that salt to counter anything. Your minerals are coming from your food. But what you did is you, you cut out the iodine and iodine has been shown because the, the thyroid hormone, the thyroid is the only place in the human body that we use iodine. Otherwise, iodine can be toxic. It is the only place, and if you don't have sufficient iodine, you are definitely going to have problems with your thyroid. I mean, in the United States, when they started iodized salt, although everybody has now moved away from iodized salt because they're into these, quote, natural salts, and then, but iodine is critically important to be able to have a, a normal functioning thyroid. And you say, well, why didn't people have problems like that in the past? Because everybody lived on coastal regions. I mean, we all lived where there, you know, well, you live on the coast if you're in the UK, but I mean, like I live in the middle of a land, I'm in landlocked. I mean, I'm not even close to an ocean. I'm in the middle of the United States. And so I have no source of iodine. If you live like an ocean and you're eating seaweed, you're eating fish that are caught from the ocean, they have the iodine there. And it used to be people always lived on these, you know, that's where we always lived. And now, you know, we're inland and inland and we don't have those iodine sources. And so that's the biggest thing with our thyroid is that please use iodized salt. Those are people with hypothyroidism, which is a vast, vast majority of people with thyroid disease have hypo, yes. underproducing thyroid, or they have Hashimoto's, which is the one where you have the antibodies that are being produced against an inflamed thyroid. What caused that inflammation? Mm. Good question. I don't agree that it was your immune system that created the immune the inflammation. It's just your immune system is trying to fix the inflammation. That's why it's created the antibodies. So, 
It's because we don't have enough iodine. If it, but if you're hyper, if you have Graves' disease, hyper, you, your, your thyroid is already producing tons and tons and tons. We just need to bring you down, and that's a, a typical response to eating sugars and having high-caffeine diets and mm. being really jacked it up. Al- it always comes back to just eating naturally, eating what our ancestors would have eaten, doesn't it? Yes. So autoimmune. Let's say, and I'm doing the quote marks because I know that in your courses you use the quote marks for autoimmune. You, you've called it a, um, a, a, a scapegoat. So, um, I, And I've got an autoimmune disease. I've had an autoimmune disease since I was 23 months old. So um, this, is, this was really interesting for me. So what are the biggest factors in autoimmune diseases and the, the best ways that you would use diet to treat those? For autoimmune diseases, the first thing we have to do is we have to, normally autoimmune diseases, there's some type of inflammation involved, mm. whether it's inflammation of the thyroid or if it's inflammation of the trigeminal nerve that leads down into our face, increases extreme pain and numbness, or whether it's inflammation in your knees and you have arthritic knees or elbows or back, or you have, you know, the ankylosing spondylosis, which is an inflammation in your back, or whether you have an inflamed uh, liver or an inflamed, you know, wherever you have your inflammation, we can have... Mm. Inflammation is a, uh, a normal bodily response that's caused by some type of damage. So what's causing the damage? Free radicals, saturated fats, so we get rid of those. And then the, everybody's heard probably of corticosteroids, and the one that is on the market that doctors use most often is called pregnazone. And pregnazone is a corticosteroid. We make our own endogenous corticosteroids. All humans make corticosteroids. And their main purpose is to reduce the inflammation that's caused by everyday friction. See, we're, we're all in motion. We all are moving around and you know doing whatever we do. And whenever you have motion, you have friction. And you know we have our laws of physics, you know, uh, the laws of motion, we call them. And our third law set basically states, for every action in nature, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That is so true. And then the laws are laws. It means they are proven. They're not theory. I mean, they are pe- beyond theory. They are go. This is the way the world runs. For every action in nature, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if you rub two surfaces together, as you push, there's a, the equal amount of pull in the opposite direction. And so as you continue to, like, let's rub our hands together, you are going to go back and forth, back and forth, and you are creating an equal and opposite reaction, which results in uh, the sub-laws that come from the third law of motion, friction. Well, friction means that you are going to create heat, don't believe me, rub your hands together. We all know what happens. You rub your hands together, they get warmer. They get, well, what if you kept rubbing your hands together? You, you didn't stop. You do this for half hour. You do it for half an hour. Your hands are sore. They're inflamed. You have damaged the tissue because of this rubbing frictional force. And in all of the human body, we're all in motion. Everything is in motion and moving. And so as they're moving, you're creating friction, which creates inflammation that is the side product of it. It is unavoidable. And so what is the purpose of the cortical steroids that we make ourselves, those endogenous cortical steroids? They are to reduce the inflammation from everyday friction. 
because we have to live. I mean, I'm talking. My mandible, that's your jawbone's going up, down, going up, down, up, up, down. And it's, it's attached right here to a joint into my skull. And it goes reek, reek, up and down, up and down, move, 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 move. And that's going to create inflammation. Well, I have sufficient cortical steroids that immediately reduce the inflammation as is being created by that motion. And so when a person doesn't make enough cortical steroids, then we have a problem. Because those cortical steroids cannot reduce the inflammation, and the inflammation can result in thyroiditis. It can result in the inflammation on the trigeminal nerve. It can, or the eighth cranial nerve, or the, you know, or your knees, or wherever it is. And so we need to. And you'll say, well, well, nerves aren't moving. Well, yes, they, we are sending electrical messages down nerves, and so that electricity is creating its own type of inflammation and friction. It's still a friction. Even little charges are creating little frictions. And so we have to have our own natural cortical steroids. Pregnizone is a cortical steroid that is synthetic, that is made, and then we give to people who have inflammatory conditions. And it's effective. It will reduce inflammation. There's no doubt about it. However, there are side effects because we don't... You make your cortical steroids according to what you need at the moment. And so when we dose somebody with pregnizone, we're giving them whatever we're giving them, 10 milligrams, 20, 40. I have some people that are taking 150 milligrams of pregnizone a day. It's just like, whoa. And that's a lot. And you get it every day, the same amount. And so what if you get too much? Well, it causes osteoporosis. It can cause anxiety. There's a lot of side effects. You can look them up, you know, all the side effects of, of too much cortical steroid. Well, what's really cool about the human body, you only produce what you need. So what about all these people that are, have all these inflammatory conditions and are not producing what they need? It's because their adrenal glands, because it's the adrenal glands that produce the cortical steroids. Your adrenal gland is, there's the medulla, that's the center part of your adrenal gland. And then the outside layer of your adrenal gland, and you have two of them, they sit on your back, and they're in your back, and they sit on top of your kidneys. They're not a part of your kidney, they're just on top of, that's why they're called adrenal. Their renal is kidney, and ad means on top of. So they're on top of the kidneys, and they function separately from the kidneys, or part of your endocrine system producing hormones. And the outer layer of that adrenal gland is called the cortico. And so it is there in the cortico that we make these hormones to reduce our inflammation. That's why they're called corticosteroids, because that's where they're made. So who's sending the signals down to the adrenal gland to say, hey, make more? Well, your pituitary is. And how does the pituitary know to tell, and it's sending a very certain hormone, to trigger the adrenal to produce a cortical steroid? So, well, who's telling, talking to the pituitary? That's your brain. Your brain is actually instructing the pituitary according to how much inflammation you have and what's going on in your body. And it's actually the hypothalamus. It's called pituitary hypothalamus axis. Hypothalamus is part of your brain. So what happens is you're getting the signal, hey, we need some cortical steroids because I have inflammation in my knee because I milk cows. I'm in Wisconsin. There's a lot of people milking cows <laughs> over here, okay? Up and down, up and down with these cows. And so my knees are aching. Well, you need more cortical steroid to your knees because there's more motion at the knees. You see, the more you use something, wherever you have the motion, that's what's going to have most friction where you're going to have most inflammation. Well, so then we get the signal sent, we need more. But what happens if the adrenals are fatigued? What if they say, I'm tired? You know, I've got to make other hormones besides cortical steroids. They do. They make epinephrine. They make norepinephrine. They make, they make a type of androgen that then will stimulate production for women and estrogen. I mean, we're making a lot of hormones here. And they're saying, well, you know, I'm worn out. Well, why are you so worn out, adrenals? Why can't you make the cortical steroid that you need to to reduce this inflammation over here in this part of the body? 
Well, because the person that is hosting me is constantly wearing me down by eating sugar and drinking caffeinated beverages, and they live this high-stress lifestyle, don't get enough sleep. They're adrenaline junkies. And so they're constantly been demanding me to produce adrenaline, 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 because those things I just ran, rattled off, they increase your production. They demand that you make more adrenaline. And the more adrenaline you make, well, then you increase the demand on the adrenals. And then over time, as you continue to say, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more, then the adrenals say, I'm, I'm just tired. I can't give any more. If you have inflammation, your adrenals are failing you because they're so worn out. And they're worn out because of things that you have done. And that's stuff we can re-reverse. We can reverse all that. Well, that's what's amazing about your course. So, you know, the, it, it kind of put inflammatory conditions and autoimmune conditions kind of together, which explains that and, and gives you the, um, the, the guide and the way forward to be able to reverse that, which is just brilliant. What about cancer? Let's touch on cancer very quickly. I hate cancer. I hate cancer. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone does. <laughs> it's, cancer is the number one cause of death in the entire world. It is out of control. Um, the latest estimates that I thought that it, it was going to continue to increase over the next 20 years exponentially. And cancer is a change in the DNA. It's your own cells. So your DNA is the way you were given to it, given to you by your parents. And then there are mutations that occur because of our exposures to our environment or our own lack of clearing our own metabolic waste. You know, that whole back to, you know, that enterohepatic recirculation where we're recirculating, recirculating our own toxic waste. And so cancer is a mutation of your own DNA. And when the DNA is copied, it copies the mutation. Now, we do have DNA repair systems. We have several different systems that can go in and put the DNA back to where it's supposed to be. But what if, like the P53 gene, which is a major gene in preventing cancer spread, what if the gene that was mutated was the P53 gene? <laughs> oh, you're not going to have that? You're going to go through a mitosis because it actually blocks mitosis from happening. So the cell can't reproduce itself, so it basically dies off. And through natural selection, you don't carry on that gene. It's pretty cool the way. Uh, and then we have, you know, we have different DNA systems, DNA repair systems that will come in and swap out the nucleotides for you. And so we can encourage those in treating cancer, but we also have to take away the things that are creating the original mutation. And so your own hormones can create DNA damage. Hormones are our number one catalyst that cause these reactions to happen. And so they come back in and catalyze more reactions. And then they can also be more nuclear receptors. That's why you have like people with breast cancer. The vast majority of breast cancer is going to be diagnosed as, they call it hormonally receptive, estrogen receptive, you know, they're, because it's estrogen that created the cancer. Yes, we know, because you had too much estrogen. Why did you have too much estrogen? Well, one, you might've been drinking coffee. Coffee causes you to produce large amounts of estrogen. That's not helpful. But then you were never clearing it either. You never cleared your estrogen that you were producing. That's a nuclear receptor that will create DNA damage in the breast cells where estrogen is particularly concentrated. And so you, we don't throw it away. It recycles at 95%. And then, what, well, of course you have cancer. What did we expect? 
And see, now we understand all this, but before we didn't know it, we just think we're just sitting ducks. We're not sitting ducks. There's something we can do. The reason I hate cancer so much is because it's a mutation on the DNA. So we have to fight it by, first of all, quit adding things into the whole diet that create a more hormonal response. We have to start clearing all these hormones and clearing the nuclear receptors. So what do we do? We, we, we stop making the situation worse, and then we help our DNA repair systems as much as possible by putting in the foods that will do that. And there are certain foods that do that. And so that's, that's how we treat it. But why I hate cancer so much is because what we've been doing in cancer research, there's a lot of drugs that treat different cancers is that they will find, we can see where the DNA is mutated. And so then we, we try to stop the process and, and we're, we're too far downstream. In chemistry, we call things upstream and downstream in a long chemical process of events that happen. We're too far downstream and we're trying to correct it here at this, this downstream level. But the problem with cancer is that you can get another hit onto that cancerous cell and you create a mutation in the cancerous mutation. So it changes so frequently that you get a mutation on the mutation on the mutation, just like we're looking at with the coronavirus. I mean, with I was talking about the clades and that, and all these polymorphisms, and, and it's, it's changing, and we can't keep it up with it. So we need to look further upstream. We're looking so far downstream. We got to look further upstream, and say, okay, so how can we how can we stop this before it started? What are we going to do? But the point is that we, we have the ability to prevent it if we do the right things. We can prevent it. Prevention mm. is so much more doable than once we have, you know, if you're diagnosed with, you know, stage four, you know, and it's metastasized everything, it's just like, we're in trouble. And there's things that I want to try too, that, I'm, that I want to mount clinical studies on that I think that, that might even change things, even that late stage cancer. But all that has to be done. It's just a tremendous work that's been done. That's why I have asked God to give me my full 120 years. <laughs> I think you're going to get it, Karen. So I am 62 now, will shortly in October be 63. And I have a lot of work that has to be done. And so the DNA, by the way, is set to you can go through all these mitoses for 120 years, unless you have so many mutations and you eat so horribly, you may not make it that long. So, and you anyway. actually reversed your gray hair. So I think that we can... Yes. Uh, Yes, believe I mean, that anything's seen, possible. Absolutely, I am. You're, you're looking at me. I mean, you've seen me today. I don't know yep. if you can see me now the way yep, we're recording. Yep. But anyway, I am. Um, I'm 62 years old, and I am. I have never dyed my hair. And by the way, I will never dye my hair because I want people to see what does it look like for this person who's been eating right for this many decades to age. Yeah, it's amazing. So, and there are so many other. Um, uh, uh, illnesses that you cover on your courses, which we're not going to have time to go through, but I just want people to know that Karen covers, I mean, ADD and um, uh, weight loss, menopause, um, pregnancy and, and Crohn's disease, which is, you know, a, a, a huge one, um, infertility and depression, obviously, is, you know, major. So all these things are covered. Um, and the great thing about them is that Karen's processes don't require the use of any other supplements or anything. So actually, you're not spending money on expensive treatment supplements, nothing, you're simply doing this course following it, and, um, and using the information, the amazing information uh, involved in that. Um, I do want to touch very quickly, um, just because, and I know that not many people suffer with trigeminal neuralgia, but based on the fact that I have recently um, experienced onset 
of this and there isn't much information out there not much positive information out there whenever you look up trigeminal neuralgia all you see is the suicide disease suicide pains there is no cure and that's difficult to watch and I decided no um, I'm going to be the Roger Bannister of um, of uh, trigeminal neuralgia and I'm not going to accept that it's never going to go because it is absolutely more you know I've been in a wheelchair but this is debilitating and there aren't many people who suffer from it but for the people that there are I want to have a little bit of information here from you just to cover why it is reversible and we can heal it it is reversible. It can be healed. And you will be healed too, Lauren. But, and it's not a surprise that you got that because you said since you were a child, a small child, you already had problems with producing cortical steroids to reduce the pain and inflammation in other parts of your body. And so it's just a matter of time before the nerve, the trigeminal nerve is a nerve that that controls uh, our our facial responses and you know whether we can you know muscles in our face i mean we have to have little electrical signals electrical signals are controlling all of our motion and so the nerve that's carrying the electrical signals to this part of our face if that nerve becomes inflamed first of all it cannot necessarily carry the signal well so then you may not be able to talk or you may have you know your, your mouth half of your mouth you know it depends on which side you know that you, you have nerves on both sides of your face the trigeminals on both sides and so th- this is if this is the nerve that is inflamed the one on say your left side of your face then you're going to have some difficulties there and so trigeminal the trigeminal nerve as it becomes inflamed is extremely extremely painful i mean it just Nerve pain is, uh, it's terrible. I mean, people can relate to it. Like, you know, we've all bumped our elbow when we say, oh, I hit my funny bone. Remember that pain that shoots through when you hit your funny bone on your elbow, you know, because you bumped it against something? This is the type of pain that nerve pain is. It's excruciating. That's why people just say, I just would rather die than experience this pain. Honestly, in my last episode, I told my husband I'd rather have my arm amputated. I'd rather most things than this because at least then I could function. I could play with my children. It's not like anything I've ever experienced before or can even articulate. It's like someone is electrocuting the side of my face for 20 minutes at a time. I can't close, I can't lick my lips or swallow. I just sit there drooling. Um, You can't talk. And I'm going through periods of remission. I won't call it remission. I'm going through periods, you know, days where it gets a bit better. And then towards the second half of my menstrual cycle, it tends to flare up again. And I've had two very, very severe attacks since I since it really came on in April. And it's absolutely the most debilitating thing. So but I, I'm determined to not let it rule my life. And um, thankful that today is a good day. And I'm able to speak to you. But um, I was very happy to hear that you have treated it successfully. Oh, very successfully, very successfully. So the, the, the problem with it is that like when you come up to a menstrual cycle, when a woman approaches a menstrual cycle, all their efforts are to be making the hormones to be able to accomplish that cycle. The raw ingredients to make those hormones are those good fats that we were talking about. And all of those resources are going to go to be making the progesterone, the estrogen, those are the hormones that you're making just coming up on a menstrual cycle. And they're made in very much elevated amounts. So you don't have enough resources. The body is going to have you go through the cycle. That is going to happen. So this little inflammation, I call it little, it's big, on the nerves that's running down into your face, 
is lower priority. We have to have a menstrual cycle right now. That's why it's always worse. It will be worse when you're under stress because when you're under stress, you have to make epinephrine and norepinephrine because you have to rise to the occasion because, you know, this or that happened in your life, you know, or you're worried about something. It can even be positive stress that you're preparing to go on vacation to wherever and you're happily getting prepared for that and you're just busy or you're working in your garden more. You've decided that you're going to do an exercise program because you think that exercise is going to fix this. Oh no, it's going to make it a lot worse. And so, because you're, you're diverting the precious resources that you have into making another hormone and at the same time putting adrenal stress on the gland that has to make the cortical steroids, it is reversible. It is completely reversible. And so. with that, and this goes for any illness as well and, and anything that you touch on, um, I think, this, you know, it is, a I would say, an intense course. Um uh, not not intense, but it's, it, it really moves away from what we are used to um, as a society. Um, and, you know, the protocols are, it means no sugar means no fruit. Uh, so nothing sweet at all. And no caffeine means not even a cup of herbal tea. And uh, that's the thing I found most challenging is just not being able to sit down with my tea once a day, which was my treat when my little one goes to sleep. Um, mm-hmm. So... Would you say that if someone, because you said that it works in three-month increments, if someone notices vast improvement after three months or six months or nine months, that they can relax on those things? Or, you know, if someone has a chronic illness and is, is finding relief with your program, what would you say? Because we are also human and balance is important and enjoyment is important. And I do believe that we've kind of created these new modern terms for enjoyment and perhaps we need to rethink whether you know coffee we need that coffee to enjoy our life but you know all that burger or whatever it may be that's making someone you know quote unquote happy but can we relax on it a little bit at some points yes you have to be able to have three months with no symptoms i mm. mean that you are well feeling fantastic then you could allow your fruit twice a week or a glass of wine twice a week mm-hmm. or a saturated fat occasionally here and there. And But as far as caffeine, it will always give you a problem and almost immediately. Once you're off caffeine, you have caffeine, you're most likely going to have a headache or feel anxious or have panicky and feeling those, you know, even can have a panic attack. Some things you just don't do. It's just like saying, well, you know, I went off of cigarettes, you know, cigarettes are bad. We all know how bad tobacco is, you know, we shouldn't be doing it. And so you give it up and then you say, well, after a while, could I have just one or two cigarettes? Mm. Why would you want to do that? They are Mm. so detrimental. You know that they caused your lung cancer. If you could even recover from the lung cancer, why are you doing that? I want to live to 120. And that is the number of mitosis that you could go through. I mean, that is the medical fact now Mm. that we have, you know, because there's end caps on the the chromosome there, the the DNA is called telomeres. That's another story for another day. But anyway, so 120 years. But if I'm going to get to that 120, I don't even allow myself the occasional fruit because I have a lot of work to do. My joy is in my work. Mm. You know, if, if I have somebody said, what would you do today if you could do anything else that you could do? I would go to work. Yeah, I get that. I get that. My husband says to me sometimes when I'm writing, he's like, why don't you have a break? I'm like, this is my break. This is what yes. I enjoy. I just very quickly want to ask you, because some people might be watching this who have nut allergies. Um, Can they still do this? And indeed, can allergies, can nut allergies be healed? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Allergens are just antigens or foreign proteins. We react to proteins. And so they just have to be cleared out. How do you clear them? Through the enterohepatic recirculation. That's the whole leading the soluble fiber. 
and then eventually you won't have that load of allergens in your bloodstream. As far as being allergic to nuts, we need the oils. I need the good unsaturated fats. So if you can't have a nut, we'll eat avocados. If you say you don't like avocados, then just start lacing your food with oil. Olive oil, avocado oil, safflower oil, canola oil. Just give me an unsaturated fat. I mean, and the fats are not carrying the antigens. Antigens are proteins. Your fats are not proteins. It's a completely different molecular setup. And you're big on fish oils, you say. So I know that you don't, um, you tell people not to take any supplements but would you advise taking a very good fish oil or just to eat the fish just eat the fish just eat the fish i don't i don't advise any supplement i mean we can do this with food alone because in the fish you're getting the protein you're also getting all the minerals you're getting a lot of other things you're you're getting everything mm. and i just want to say as well that karen does make um make this possible for vegetarians and vegans and on her courses there is information about that so uh do not be put off if you are vegetarian or vegan um right so we have covered so much and i don't want to take up any more of your time although i could speak to you all day um so what i always end i end the episodes with a quick succession of questions it's just a little bit of fun but helps the listener get to know you on a personal level a bit more so here goes what is the best piece of advice you can offer eat beans three times a day breakfast lunch and dinner great piece of advice if lockdown happened again but there was no tv or internet but you could learn one skill and read one book what would they be the one skill that you have to learn is not even a skill is that you must stay warm that is the great that's how we're that's how we're going to defeat the coronavirus i mean the vaccines have got so many different clays we're going to have problems with those it's going to be heat the coronavirus is very susceptible to heat so get scarf around your neck, get, get a, a heating pad on your chest, get warm, breathe warm air, get, get into the sauna if you have availability to get into a sauna. And that's going to save your life. As far as the one book to read? For you, what would you read? But you personally, what would, if lockdown oh, happened what, again what? and you had to keep yourself occupied with something to, to make you happy? Oh, to make me happy? Oh, well, I would be reading a biochem text. I know, because <laughs> I, I just, I just want to know more and more and more. So, That's amazing. Yeah. I love how passionate you are. What profession? Oh, I don't even want to ask you this question, but what profession other than your own would you like to try? Oh, well, this one may shock you, and I've already tried it, and I'm still going down that road. I'm a writer, and I'm a producer of movies. And so I've produced only one movie so far, but I've been writing for decades. I write for a local newspaper, a historical fiction um, column. I'm about to finish a book wow. um, and then I will be publishing one way or another and I'm writing another book. And so and it's all fiction. I, I love to tell a story. So yeah. Oh, I love fiction as well. That's so exciting. Please let me know when, when the book's published. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Right. And so the last one is one thing from your daily self-care ritual that's non-negotiable and why? I'm guessing you're going to say eating beans. Well, no, sugar. I will never, ever, ever touch sugar. It is so detrimental. I, will, I just won't, period. Okay, thank you. So, I mean, there's so yeah. much information to be learned from listening to you, Karen. I'm so grateful for you offering your time and your wisdom. Um, I said before, but people can find you at karenherd.com and from there they can access the courses. Is there anywhere else they should be following? Um, no, that would be great. Just, yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you. And thank you to everyone who tuned in to listen to Recondition. Thank you so much.
The Reconditioned Podcast is proud to support Solace Women's Aid, who support survivors of domestic abuse and sexual violence, working with over 27,000 people each year to build safe lives and strong futures.